I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And a radio station is just a radio station, right? Well, not when it's WBCN in Boston. For probably millions of baby boomers like yours truly who grew up in New England, WBCN stands alone as a truly unique icon, a legend, a significant and meaningful piece of American cultural and political history. And here's how it all began. Though it is no longer broadcasting, 104.1 FM gave voice to an emerging culture known in greatly reduced shorthand as the counterculture, the Woodstock generation. WBCN played amazing, great rock and roll, but also gave voice to the anti-war movement, the civil rights and women's lib movements. When WBCN switched over to become a rock station, on March 15, 1968, as the Beatles sang, the world was waiting just for you. Full disclosure, I'm hardly an impartial observer. Rumors of something new on the air had been swirling when I was in high school, and my little radio was tuned to 104.1 for the icebreaker, which was, as you just heard, I Feel Free by Cream, which we heard at the opening of the show. Before I graduated high school that June, my already rock and roll loving life was jolted on WBCN by such groundbreaking tunes from Jeff Beck as Ain't Superstitious, Shapes of Things, and the still incredible Beck's Bolero. There had been nothing like it on the radio, those tunes and WBCN itself. As Lou Reed was to say later, my life was saved by rock and roll. It's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's hard not to gush about WBCN if you were a listener. BCN may be gone, but it is hardly forgotten. And there may be some who are not familiar with the legend of the Rock of Boston. The reason we're talking about it today is the release of a long-anticipated new movie called WBCN and the American Revolution. Fresh from winning the Best Documentary Prize at the D.C. Independent Film Festival, its premiere is April 27th at the Somerville Theater in good old Somerville, Mass., followed by a host of other venues. Again, in full disclosure, I worked in the news department as an intern in 1979 with Dinah Vapor and Katie Abel, Matt Schaefer, and the legendary 
Danny Schechter, your news dissector, who sadly has passed from this earthly realm. So many personalities I had the honor of meeting some rockers, some political people, many of whom are expected at the premiere of the film. And we'll talk about them as our discussion goes on today. Many of them are still making waves through other on-air venues or in many different ways. It was kind of a uh, ripple in the pond just moving out. We're honored today to have as guest on Keeping Democracy Live, the filmmaker himself, Bill Lichtenstein. Bill, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Live. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Bill Lichtenstein is himself a WBCN veteran. He began working at the station in 1970 at the age of 14. Yes, 14. First as a volunteer on the stationer's station's famous listener line and later as a newscaster and announcer with his own program. His last film, West 47th Street, won the Special Jury Award for Documentary Film at the 2001 Atlanta Film Festival Audience Award for Best Long-Form Documentary at the 2002 D.C. Independent Film Festival. I will mention at the 2002 Woodstock Film Festival, which aired on PBS's POV and was called a must-see by Newsweek and remarkable by The Washington Post. A brand new film. You say... When WBCN arrived on Boston's radio dial, it was a transformative event. In what ways? You know, as I'm hearing that, I'm not even sure transformative does justice to to um, you know the uh, the new and different sounds and 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 reality that the WBCN brought to the airwaves. Um, you know, imagine radio. Uh, and the only place you can hear rock and roll or anything uh, that, that young people would want to listen to uh, was Top 40 radio. And, and as we say in the film, it was called Top 40 because it was literally the yeah. same two-minute songs over and over again. It was loud. It was kinetic. Uh, there were about 20 minutes of loud uh, national ads every hour. And most of all, there were hyper-screaming uh, DJs who all had some <laughs> sort of shtick. Uh, and, and if you wanted to hear music, uh, you know, obviously before the Internet, uh, yes. that's all there was. That- and um, to suddenly be able to turn on the radio and hear, uh, you know, the, the, the full spectrum of music that was emerging at that point from the great blues artists, you know, B.B. King oh, yeah. and John Lee Hooker and, and Muddy Waters. Paul Butterfield. Uh, to, to bands from San Francisco, folk artists, classical music, jazz, Rasan Roland Kirk, Miles Davis. Um, and people talking in conversational tones like we're talking now, it just, it, it was unlike anything anybody had ever seen or even imagined. It came out of the imagination of this guy, Ray Reapin, who started the station. And, and how did he come about? I mean, what was WBCN 104.1 before that launch, March 15th, 1968? And, and how did he happen to do it? It's, and it's all in the film. It's fantastic. Well, it's a really interesting story, and and um, you know, uh, it, Ray Reapin uh, was largely in the mold of today. You know, a very bright entrepreneur, and he had this vision of a transformative in the way you know Uber or Airbnb were just transformative ideas. He had this transformative vision of radio, yeah. and it grew out of the fact that he owned this club in Boston called the Boston Tea Party, which uh-huh. he ended up with by accident. Uh-huh. He had signed a, a lease, um, uh, you know, for this space uh, for someone else and ended up owning it himself. 
Uh, and so he saw he, he began uh, bringing uh, rock and roll bands and jazz bands in to play, and saw how popular they were with young people. The Who, Led Zeppelin, uh, you know, you name it, from the mid to oh, later yeah. '60s, they came through there. But he realized, as popular as that was, and is it like in 1968, for the first time, albums started outselling singles. Uh-huh. And for young people, it's, you know, the big 12-inch records or albums. Before that, you used to go and just buy a 45, which was just one song. <laughs> and so people were buying these albums uh, from groups, but he couldn't hear any of that music on the radio. And so he decided he would try to find a way uh, to get some airtime and try to do this, you know, play this music on the radio. Well, it seems like the demand was there, and bingo, there was a supply. And interesting, you mentioned the Boston Tea Party. I remember it well at the corner of Berkeley Street. And among the formative experiences in my uh, late 60s life, when I was a late teenager, was the Boston Tea Party. It didn't thrill my parents, okay? My first experience there was seeing the Velvet Underground and the all-encompassing light shows. I had never seen anything like that before. So BCN, and it, it, it started uh, like in a back room there? Well, initially, um, Ray found a radio station uh, that was failing. It was a failing classical ah, music station yes. uh, called WBCN. It was Boston Concert Network. And FM had just, it was a new technology. It had just come along. Most people didn't even have an FM radio. They were encouraging people uh, to buy FM radios because most of radio was AM at that point. The advantage of FM was that it was stereo, which AM was not. And also because of the way the the, uh, radio wave uh, went, it was static-free. So um, it was perfect for classical music. So there was this first wave of all these classical music stations. But WBCN, which had been a classical station, was failing, was going bankrupt. And he approached them uh, to give him the hours just from 12 midnight to 6 in the morning uh, to try this sort of experimental new kind of radio. But the problem was they were on Newbury Street. Uh, the station was, was run by and populated by uh, older people at that point, many of whom were Republicans and uh, sort of famously Republican. And, um, and Ray uh, had hired to do this new radio station he envisioned he hired a bunch of college kids who had long hair band t-shirts uh often were smoking funny cigarettes no and the the two groups just didn't mix <laughs> and frankly they told them they didn't want the kids in the station <laughs> so he uh, bought a couple turntables and a little board like the kind if you were going to dj at a wedding you know it looks like that um <clears throat> and and ran a phone line from the back room of the Boston Tea Party. It was literally the green room where the Who or Led Zeppelin would be, you know, changing to get ready to go out on stage. And in one corner was this radio station live on the air. Uh, and so that's how it started in the back room of the Boston Tea Party. And speaking of things getting going, this film, WBCN and the American Revolution, how did it come to be it's been sort of in the works for a while and i guess the funding wasn't your normal commercial uh, uh sources well I, you know i've joked about it that it's been 
in in uh, production for or, or been in formation for 50 years because you know I started working at the station when I was 14 in 1970 and almost immediately um, you know there were things there were tapes of stuff from on the air and I, I just started archiving stuff and making copies you know and setting them aside just because they seemed impossibly important and, and great and so I've been collecting stuff in a way going back 50 years but really the the inception of the film. Um, and there's actually a, a longer version of the story, which I can tell you. It's sort of interesting if, if we have time. Um, the, the longer version is I and another producer from ABC, who I worked with for years, uh, struggled to try to do a documentary about Phil Oaks, who, uh, people don't know who Phil Oaks was. He was a uh, contemporary of Bob Dylan, protest singer, but much more, uh, much less uh, poetic and f- and. and f- of florid in his use of language and much more almost journalistic and he wrote songs about the vietnam war and, and integration and other important topics um the family was split about which filmmakers they wanted to work with his brother uh was a uh decided to work with one we were working with his sister but this went on for a long time and in the end uh another filmmaker ended up making the film which ended up uh, I think on American Masters, yeah, um, but the point of the film was how people can create social change through art and culture, and using Philokes as an example. And when that film uh, went off to be made without us, I, I it was the mid two uh, thousands, and you know at that point it was post nine eleven, the Iraq War was raging, uh, Bush was Bush two was president, um, but it seemed like there was not the kind of uh, opposition or protest or people speaking up about things, as I had recalled back in the late yes. 60s and early 70s. And, and one of the seminal moments was uh, Bruce Springsteen was doing a benefit concert for John Kerry, who was running for president, and people accused him of being too political. <laughs> and I thought back in, in the day, back in the 60s, if a you know, singer, a musician, was doing a benefit for the Democratic candidate for president that'd be accused of being too conservative. Yes. Um, but it was sort of like, you know, music doesn't belong in politics. And and I recalled what had gone on in the 60s and decided that if we could, uh, I'd like to make a film about how media created social change back in the day. And the other thing that happened was because of Napster and uh, the Internet generally, a lot of material, because BCN had no archives, really, of that period, but a lot of material started uh, and music started surfacing on the Internet. Um, one of the first photos that I found that kind of gave me the idea for the film was the day Daniel Ellsberg turned himself in at the federal court in Boston. I was there with Danny Schechter, who you mentioned. Um, and there's a photo that, that just surfaced, you know, of uh, Daniel Ellsberg mobbed by hundreds and hundreds of reporters, but Danny Schecht is standing right next to him with a microphone in his face. And I thought, you know, there must be other stuff out there. So that's really what began the process of thinking of, of doing this film in about 2006. Yeah, Danny Schechter was, was just totally unique, and he has had if a lot of influence on uh, what, what's now called advocacy journalism, very amazing guy at, at WBCN only. Danny Schechter, your news dissector. And if you yeah. just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. Uh, the show is Keeping Democracy Live. Our guest today is filmmaker Bill Lichtenstein. Brand new film, long anticipated, called WBCN and the American Revolution. Well, why is it called that? Was, there any, was that like the obvious title? Uh, and, and Danny Schechter called it 
called WBCN the engine of the cultural revolt. Talk about that, if you would, please. Well, uh, the American Revolution was the tagline that uh, the radio station selected uh, to use on air. So if you tuned in, you can hear it in, in the documentary in those days. They would say, you're listening to WBCN in Boston, the American Revolution. And it was, you know, I think a signal that the station represented a voice for all of the things that, that were changing during that period, not just the music, but culturally, um, it, it really was busting out of what had been the kind of 1950s America, where you were expected, uh, you know, to uh, grow up, and if you were a man, go off to college and get a job, uh, and put on a suit and tie every day, and if you were a woman, uh, you'd find a husband and, right. and keep home and have kids, and, you know, it was a very sort of restrictive view of life. And it was reflected in the media and shows like, you know, Leave it to Beaver and, uh, and others. Um, and, and this best. was a revolt against all of it. And, um, you know, I think from, from the second wave of feminism through gay and lesbian rights, through questioning our foreign policy in Vietnam, this was part of a, a global cultural revolution that took place, for, uh, frankly, not just in America in 1968, but throughout the world. The entire world was going through this. You know, there, there were riots and, and protests in mm. Paris and in Mexico and really all over the world. So it really connected with a lot of people in Boston. And then, you know, the legend goes on. It comes out from there. The anti-war movement at the time of BCN's founding in 1968 was getting hotter by the day. There was a big rally on the Boston Common, and the movie shows WBCN's presence at that big anti-war rally on the Boston Common. Talk about that, if you would, please. Well, um, there had been some protests against the war in Vietnam, but really by 1968-69, it became clear uh, that this was uh, you know, a big mistake, and at the same time, uh, young men in record number and increasing numbers were being drafted. Uh, you know, so when you turned 18, you had to register with the draft board, and then they had a lottery once a year mm -hmm. where they pulled out birth dates. And depending on, on you know, how your birth date came out of the, mm -hmm. the fishbowl when they pulled the numbers, um, you could be sent off to Vietnam. Yes. And it was a, a matter of great concern, you know, to sure. just to young people, but people generally. So um, out of Boston came this idea, it started in Boston, to have a one-day kind of strike protest against the war, and it was called the moratorium. It was kind of a funny name at that time, but it, what it meant was take a day off and, and do something to register your opposition to the war. So this was on October 15th and 69, and they had these protests around the country. A month later, because of the success, there was a national right. protest on November 15th in Washington, which people probably have seen photos of, you know, it was huge. But a month before, October 15th, there were protests around the country. Boston was the biggest. It was over 100,000 people on the Boston Common. It was the largest anti-war rally to that point. And BCN was, was um, you know, uh, tremendously involved in its organization, uh, and and then more importantly, from an enduring point of view, uh, enduring point of view, uh, VCN paid uh, a skywriter to make a huge peace sign over the city of Boston, uh, which could be seen from everywhere, and that became an iconic image. Um, Life magazine 
did a, uh, an issue the next week about the protests, and it was a double-spread photo in the Center of Life magazine, the Boston Common, with all these people, and the peace sign overhead. Interestingly, one, one bit of trivia, um, interestingly, we got the photos from the family of the photographer, a guy named Yale Joel, uh, they're over at Boston University, to use in the film. And when we got the original photos, which many people have probably seen, that peace sign, across the sky was written WBCN. <laughs> and I thought, I- I've never seen that. And I went back and looked at the Life magazine photo, and apparently they had airbrushed it out <laughs> just because it, it confused <laughs> you know, the photograph for people outside of Boston. But um, oh, there was a huge peace sign, and the, word, the letters WBCN over the city, and it, it became really uh, an iconic uh, and enduring moment, uh, and, and a very important moment in the peace campaign. Um, as, as Norm Weiner, who is the program director, said in the film, and I think it, it captured for many people uh, how they felt, you know, we were all young, we didn't have much of a voice, let alone, right. you know, uh, getting our teachers or parents to listen to us, but by coming together in this group of 100,000 people, we suddenly had a voice, and people were listening, and you know we were able to be heard about these issues, and that really, I think, became one of the uh, sort of kickoff points for what became the political activism of the 60s. Yeah, it certainly uh, was an icon, that image in the sky. One of the commentators in the movie, which is again called WBCN and the American Revolution, is Noam Chomsky saying how unique the station was in that it gave voice to the then burgeoning social and political movements. A radio station giving voice to social and political movements. In that vein, uh, I wonder if you could share with us the evolution of the truly unique and much-loved news department. I mean, it was rock and roll, but there was also a very unique news department. How did that evolve and come to be? Sure. Well, the news department is an interesting story because in the beginning, as we point out in the film, the station, you know, was about the music and then became sort of increasingly, uh, uh, you know, aware and involved with the politics of the time. But there was no news. The news at that point was just a kind of haphazard. Uh, I think they had a Reuters uh, uh, machine that would print out the news and they wanted Reuters because they felt it would give... Uh, you know, in some ways, like today, when people listen to the BBC on the radio, yes, people true. felt it would give them a, uh, a more objective view of what was going on in this country than than the American media. Right. But it was sort of haphazard. And um, initially, Norm Weiner was hired to be the news director, but his love was music, and he uh, drifted towards being on the air as an announcer. And so they hired a guy named Bo Burlingham, uh, who they did not know at the time, but had been for a while involved with the Weather Underground. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, the Weather Men. Right. Uh, and right, and right, right. there's a distinction there. Yeah. Um, th- there was a radical student movement uh, in the 60s called SDS, Students for Democratic Society. Yes. Some of them broke off and became more radical right. and known as the Weathermen. Mm-hmm. And then some of them went underground and were involved in bombings, and yeah. uh, that became far more radical in Bill Ayers. Uh, who was nice. uh, uh, you know taught at University of Chicago with Barack Obama and um, uh, Bernadine Dorn? There's some nice. you know well-known names. Uh-huh. Um, Bo had been involved with the Weathermen, but not the Underground. Right. But somehow um, there was an indictment handed down uh, against 13 Weathermen for allegedly plotting. 
to blow up federal buildings around the country. And the story came across the newswire on what was Bo Burlingham's second day on the job as the news director at BCN. <laughs> so he took the news off the wire and, and says, you know, 13 weathermen are indicted. And he goes down the list of names, and there's his name. <laughs> so that was the, the end of his run, unfortunately, as news director. And Danny Schechter had been helping out with the news at that point. He was a local activist and journalist. Uh, and he became the news director. Um, and uh, through yeah. just uh, kind of play on words as he was being introduced on one of his first times on the air, uh, he was introduced as Danny Schechter, the news dissector, uh, and that stuck. And and he became kind of a one-man band for a while, starting in mid-1970, uh, covering the news. Yeah, he did an amazing job, and his... Uh, he he really set the stage for journalism that is uh, continuing across America. People who are you know taking an alternative and uh, and digging into it, trying to dissect it a bit, uh, if you would. Um, even but you talk about the weathermen. You know, it was men were in charge, even in the left, basically in the anti-war movement. For example, women sure. women had largely subservient roles. At WBCN, enter Max Ann. Tell us about her, please. Uh, it's a great story. Before we move on from Danny, uh, oh, sure. I wanna, can, do we have time? I can add one thing about oh, please um, the impact Danny had. Because I think it's important. Um, Danny had an enduring impact. And when he passed yes. away, unfortunately, 2015, I wrote a piece for the Boston Globe and reached out to you know a bunch of very credible media watchers. Jonathan Alter uh-huh. covered the media for Newsweek. And, um, and, and here's what people said that I think was so interesting about Danny. First, that he really was a journalist. That first and foremost, uh, you know, even though he sort of would, that, that he was not involved in, in what we think of as advocacy journalism, where he had a point of view about what he was trying to sell people. You know, he was really uh, as, as um, careful a journalist as you would find. But what he did was, first, he believed that journalists needed to have a point of view, and that it was okay to have a point right. of view. That that you you know that objectivity did not require you to say Donald Trump says this and Joe Biden says that. End of story. But that you should put things in context. So that was one. The second thing was BCN started using music, and I was involved with a lot of this music and comedy and and intercutting. Um, you know, news stories with these things that put things in context, and in a way, it made the news more credible yeah. because of it. And I would argue there's a direct line you could draw to John Stewart and Stephen Colbert, and 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 that kind of reporting today, and explains how John Stewart, as a comedian, could have been considered the most credible news person in America. Because I think when you put things in context, it, it helps create a greater understanding of the news. And finally, what Danny, Danny did was he, he looked at really where news came from. It, it, it's so common now to look at a story and uh, what's the news organization and what's there, who owns it, and what kind of language they mm-hmm. use. And, but really, nobody had ever really thought of that. that like, you know, the, the news itself had a point of view, depending on where it came from. It and so he began to look at that. And one of the first issues that came up was that uh, news outlets in America were routinely calling 
uh, the North Vietnamese during the war. The enemy, right. 15 enemy soldiers were killed today. And, and Noam Chomsky raised this point, and Danny took it to heart. You know, whose enemy are they? They're not our enemy. Uh, you know, uh, and so all this kind of language became something that was really uh, important to look at, and also where news came from, what, what the interests of the news organizations were. So that, that has become a really enduring uh, you know, part of his legacy, I think, um, when you look at all these, uh, you know, people kind of um, analyzing the news, it really, in a lot of ways, started with Danny. Yeah, you're right, and that entertainment uh, aspect of it. And, you know, for people to call for objectivity, it, there's no such thing as objectivity. I mean, you're right, you're looking at the platform from which it comes. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Live, and we're talking about something a little bit different here about WBCN and the American Revolution, a brand new documentary that's just coming out, and we're talking with uh, its uh, creator, Bill Lichtenstein, filmmaker. Well, we mentioned uh, Max Ann. Before, yep. b- b- even in the anti-war movement, women had largely subservient roles. Max Ann came on at WBCN. Talk about her, if you would, please, and the, and the, uh, the, the women's lib aspect of it. Sure. You know, when WBCN went on the air, uh, it, it, you know, starting with the people hired by Ray Reapin, uh, and I think, in fact, I, I, there was a documentary about WBCN done by WBAI, the Pacifica station in New York. Right, right. right. And someone at the station, 1969, described WBCN at that point as, quote, you know, a group of guys who are working together. And, you know, it, it was a group of guys. And,. Um, you know, women didn't really have a role in broadcast at that point. It's, it seems almost impossible to think about looking back. But, you know, the fact that Barbara Walters around that time was able to sit on the set of the Today Show and be an equal partner with the men as a host of the Today Show was hugely revolutionary. It was unheard of. Yeah. Um, and so what happened at WBCN was there was a growing, very... Uh, evolved group of women in Boston, uh, who some of whom were, were keenly involved in what has now become known as the second wave of feminism. Mm-hmm. And one of them were a group of women that had uh, a consciousness raising group called Bread and Roses. Ah, yes. And um, Charles Laquadera, who is uh, you know one of the most oh, yeah. prominent announcers on BCN, uh, did a public service announcement for a drug rehabilitation clinic in Boston called Project Place. And what he said on the air was, Project Place needs your help, and if you're a doctor or a therapist and you can uh, volunteer your time, call this number, and if you're a chick and you can type, they need your help too. (laughs) Um, You know, and it it was not uh, so far from what was sort of the normal, you know, uh, way that people talked in those days, and calling women chicks was kind of hip. But as somebody you know says in the film, you know this is a day when a time when you know women are reading Betty for Dan, yeah. and and the offensiveness of that you know became immediately clear. So spark. Um, one of the members of Bread and Roses who heard this got together with other women in the group, and they said we've got to do something about this. So they staged a protest, and I think it goes to the the nature of 
you know, what, what makes for protests. A lot of, I think, young people today think, like, oh, if you click like on Facebook <laughs> or go to a rally, you know. They, they came up with a very clever idea, which helped to get attention from the press, and that was they, they bought a whole bunch of little live yellow baby chicks, and they brought them up in a box uh, unannounced, and they dumped them on the general manager's desk at BCN and said, these are chicks, we're women. <laughs> And it certainly got the attention of the station. It also got the attention of the Boston Globe. And, Perfect. you know, it sort of became immediately clear, uh, you know, what their point was. They asked for two things. They asked for an hour of airtime so that they could address uh, issues that they felt were important. And it literally became the first woman's show broadcast ever. They talked about reproductive rights and violence against women and equal pay. And it's it's fascinating. Um, because a lot of it was sort of not fully formed ideas. It was almost like yeah. listening in on a consciousness raising group uh, where some of the women were saying, I've never gotten together with women before and talked about these issues. It's very empowering. And it's, it's almost like getting a window on the, the early days of, of oh. the second wave of feminism. But the other thing that they demanded was that BCN hire women announcers. Yes. And two were hired in rapid succession, one of them was Maxine, Maxine Sartori, who had uh, made a name for herself in Seattle on the radio. And as we pointed out in the film, she had uh, impeccable ears when it came to hearing music and, and finding groups that were going to be big. Um, she uh, became a champion of Aerosmith, Queen, uh, you know, there's, there's a legendary list of bands that became famous because she heard them and played them and played them and played them until people took notice. Um, in fact, most prominently at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, I think this last year, when the cars were inducted, uh, they literally told the story that they brought a tape up to BCN, uh, you know, story of how the cars were discovered. They brought a tape to BCN. Maxian played it and played it so much that it started showing up in, in um, radio reports in record industry magazines and the record industry execs looked over to see the cars are being played in boston what record label none tape <laughs> and as as they said at, at their rock and roll hall of fame induction you know there was a, a a stream of record execs coming to boston to see what this tape thing was about and that's how the cars were discovered but she was um you know critical uh, and the other thing that was important was that, that it was a role for women that was on par with men, yes. uh, not just working at the radio station and doing news, but, you know, picking the music, interacting with musicians. Um, interestingly, as we point out in the film, not everybody thought this was a good idea. Uh, Jerry Williams, who was a very prominent yes. uh, talk show host, in some ways a, a precursor of, you know, talk radio as we know it today, went on the air and blasted WBCN and Max Ann, saying literally, women do not belong in broadcasting, particularly on radio, where it's just a voice, because their voices are annoying, and, and people don't want to listen to women. And, uh, and, and more than that, they're trying to be men. If they at least would be sort of silly and frivolous, that's okay. <laughs> But the ones who are trying to sound like men and deliver the news and be taken <laughs> taken seriously as journalists, or he thought that was just the worst. And he, he, he just, 
it's hard to believe, and I think for many young people, particularly young women, to know that not so long ago, the idea of a woman being on the radio was, was really verboten, uh, I think is, is interesting. It is interesting indeed. And, and as Danny Schechter pointed out, WBCN was the engine of cultural revolt in so many different ways. And it was a commercial station. It wasn't a, a college station. Um, yeah. And, you know, it was unheard of and probably still is, for the DJs to decide which ads to play. Some were actually turned down as shows in the movie. How can that be? And, and how could it survive as a commercial station being so selective, turning down advertising? You know, I, I don't know of any, not just radio station, but any successful media venture where, you know, they, they were in a position... I mean, maybe you say, look, we don't want to take an ad from... Uh, some company, you know, the Koch brothers. Or, but generally, you know, most media uh, outlets, whether it's a newspaper or radio station, you, you make your money if you're commercial by running ads. And, and it's hard to be selective both about who you will advertise and also the commercial. BCN, from the beginning, um, had a policy that, that they would not take national ads. That was the first thing, so there were no jingles. And even with local ads, they produced all their own commercials. So if you were uh, Buzzy's Roast Beef or Jay's uh, Auto Shop or Cheap Thrills Records. I remember uh, them all. <laughs> uh, you know, you couldn't come in with some uh, serious-sounding ad. You know, that you would give them uh, an idea of what you wanted to say, and they would create these incredibly creative commercials. Um, well, I remember one that we, 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 it ended up not in the film, but there was a place called Jay's Motorsports. Uh, and it was an interview with Jay and, and he said, uh, you know, what's the best thing about Jay's Motorsports? He goes, well, we do the best, you know, job in town fixing your motorcycle. Uh, and, and then they said, do you, do you like fixing motorcycles? And he says, most times. And they said, well, when don't you? He goes, when I'm stoned. <laughs> <laughs> you know, nobody, people just never heard anything like that on the radio. Oh but to your point, wow. um, it became clear that there were some things that, that BCN would not advertise, national ads or anything that tried to uh, hair color. or And these were the staples of, of radio in those days, cosmetics, right. uh, pimple cream, BCN. And, and in the film, Charles Lockwood era voices... Uh, from back in the day, again, and from this documentary we found from 1970, um, he says something quite remarkable, which is, uh, if a product says to uh, potential customers, use this product and it will make you better in some way, we don't want to advertise that because we think that that's nonsense and that's why people you know, want to get away from that. Now, how do you survive that way? Very simply, because of it, because people... Uh, listening to the radio, um, <clears throat> respected the advertising, respected the advertisers, and knew that if it was an ad being played on BCN, it had the credibility uh-huh. of having been on BCN, um, it became a, a sought-after place to advertise. And so your ad really was getting added value uh, by being on BCN. But but it was just a group thing. I remember ads would come in and somebody would be taping them and so, oh, we're not really advertising that, and then there'd be a discussion, and and it would come down one way or the other, you know. 
and somehow it made money. Well, that's really interesting, becoming more selective, but, you know, more in demand, supply and demand, one of the rules of capitalism. Yeah. We mentioned Charles Laquadera. Wow, what can we say about him? What, there was the big mattress, Michigas. And I wanted to ask about his, his associate, Dwayne Glasscock. Has he become 18 yet? <laughs> uh, most of that happened after the, the you know the story arc of the film, but yeah. Charles came uh, along relatively early. There was a group of college students who were originally hired, and then Charles had been on the air in California at a station where they were also uh, playing rock music on FM, and um, he was uh, an aspiring actor originally from Milford, Massachusetts, but had gone to LA to break into acting. Um, and was home, uh, I think his mother was ill at that point, and turned on the radio and heard BCN and somehow ended up uh, going up there and meeting somebody from the station. Uh, and and he said, I think from the beginning, he just knew this was for him, the yeah. station. And so they hired him, and so he became one of the announcers very early on. Um, he did late nights. He did 10 to 2, which was probably the most sought-after s- slot because... You know, you you got young people, and one thing we haven't said was, you know, the audience of BCN included about two hundred forty thousand college students, eighty four colleges in Boston at that point, 84. and you know, huge. And this was really what people listened to. There wasn't much else, again, before the internet at night to, to listen yeah. to or to watch on TV. So um, he became extremely popular, yes, and um, then there's a story which is not in the film, but but is a sort of legendary story. Uh, mornings at BCN yeah. were never a big deal because, frankly, in those days, people weren't up early in the morning <laughs> to go. No. It, was, it was a much later uh, day for most people. Uh, so the mornings were kind of, uh, you know, who could we get to do the morning slot? Uh, whereas today it's largely oh, you know, yeah. the most sought-after slot of That's most radio stations. Drive time. And so... It, they uh, they asked Dinah Vaporin, who yes. was one of the women they had hired to do mornings in a, in a meeting, and she said, uh, "Oh, sure, ask the woman to do the mornings. Uh, you know, uh, you know that's not fair." And so Charles uh, said to her, as legend has it, "Hey, Dinah, you know it's a privilege to be on the station at any time. You know, I- I'll do mornings." and they walked out of the meeting, and he said to Norm Weiner, what did I just get myself into? Yeah. So he started doing mornings and immediately uh, envisioned and came up with this concept, which, you know, was really not, had not been done at that point, of this, like, ensemble radio, which has now become every station in America practically has a morning commercial station of the morning zoo, where there's an announcer and a woman and people call in and funny stuff and nothing like that had ever really been on the radio. And so he started doing the Big Mattress, which was just this uh, circus of all of these talented writers and people. And, and, and one of the listeners to the Big Mattress in the early 70s, interestingly, was a BU student across town uh, named Howard Stern, <laughs> who has recalled many times listening to Charles on the radio and thinking, wow, this is what I like to do. And, you know, he took it to another level with yeah. his show. But, but really that concept of this kind of, uh, you know, festive-like thing going on on the radio in the morning really started with Charles. And he had a very long, successful run 
you know, with the Big Mattress, which is what his show was called. It was such a great name, the Big Mattress. Be comfortable, have fun, bounce around. Uh, it, it was, We're it all went, here together. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it lasted a long time, and I believe he's still doing something uh, uh, related to BCN Freeform Radio. Out of he's in, I guess, uh, Maui or Kauai, Cali- uh, in Hawaii, something like that. I have no idea really. But Charles Laquadera, one unique personality. The all right. Speaking of getting people involved and being comfortable for you know so many thousands of, of young people in Boston, something called the Listener Line. How did that come to be? And that was pretty neat. That's a big part of the film as well. Well, it, it's a big part of the film, and I think it's what Tommy Hedges, uh, one of the announcers of the films, says that's so important about understanding uh, BCN is from the beginning that that the announcers <clears throat> did not see their role as uh, a performance, as radio as performance, but they saw their themselves as having a relationship. Uh, with uh, listeners. And from the very beginning, uh, people would call the station, uh, you know, and people would go on the air. And uh, so somebody might call up and say, hey, we're having this problem. Is anybody can help us with this? And it kind of became like almost like a bulletin board, you know. Um, and then they started to um, organize things. So they had a thing where called Traveler's Friend, where if you were driving anywhere in the country or uh, needed a ride, and in those days people needed to travel, but not everybody had enough you know, money to fly or, or get a bus ticket. So you would register and say, look, I'm driving in New York on Saturday, Saturday and I can take two people if they're willing to share gas you know, and expenses or share the driving, or I'm driving to California, or I'm driving to this festival in Oregon or whatever. And so they started doing that, and then people would call up uh, whose whose animals were missing, or they had a, a bunch of puppies, and they were trying to get you know them adopted out. And so they had a thing called the cat and dog report. And so there was this increasing sort of interaction with listeners. But the problem was people would call up, uh, and and if you were on the air, there was only sort of so many calls you could take and deal with. Uh, while you were on the air. And some of them were, were quite serious. Some of them were people who had taken too much LSD or who were depressed and suicidal. And, you know, it's a tough situation to say, you know, hold on, I've got to read the news to somebody who's who's having a very tough time. So Charles, and we actually found the tape of it, <clears throat> went on the air and said, look, we're looking for volunteers. If you could come and answer the phones here, uh, that would help, and and that began what was called the listener line. Mm-hmm. And again, before Google, before the internet, mm-hmm. the listener line pitched itself as, "We will answer any question about anything. It could be who wrote this song. It's it, it's the kind of thing people would use Siri for today on their iPhone. Where's the best pizza in Boston? Who's open late delivering uh, burgers? But it was you know anything you would want to ask." And they had a big encyclopedic library of reference books and prided themselves uh, on being able to really handle any call about anything. And, and so this you know, was another sort of two-way interaction with its listeners that I think uh, put BCN into a different realm than most uh, oh, yeah. radio stations. The other thing that was interesting was people knew from time to time if they called up with you know, oh, there's a live concert on the Cambridge Common right now, or, mm-hmm. you know, before Twitter, that that you could find yourself on the air, you know, yeah, or if there's something 
you know, a benefit or, you know, they would think nothing of just throwing somebody on the air to talk about something. So really the, the station almost had like a two-way quality to it with the listener line being the conduit. And it was huge. Let's face it. It was huge. There was BCN, and then there was a whole bunch of other stations that sort of copied it later on, but they were the biggest by far. And, you know, it comes out of being creative and taking chances and what these days we call, you know, pushing the envelope a little bit. And one of the uh, interesting cultural beginnings was, you know, back in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, gay people were, you know, largely quiet in the closet, if you will. Uh, Then came Andrew Kopkind. Tell us about the gay liberation aspect of it. Yeah, no, fascinating. Um, so Danny Schechter was doing the news by himself, uh, and then the station started to branch out into doing public affairs, meaning half-hour uh, programs, reports on different social issues, and and so they needed more staff. And so um, uh, two people were hired around 72, I think. Uh, one was Andy Kopkind, and his partner, uh, John Scagliotti. Uh, yes. uh, Andy was an extremely successful uh, straight, as they say, journalist uh, in the straight media, had worked for Time Magazine, was on his way to becoming the editor of Time Magazine, had gone to London School of Economics, and then was arrested in, in Los Angeles uh, for being gay. Oh my. And that all kind of evaporated, and he ended up writing for the New Republic and the Nation, and he was just a, a good writer. He was just, you know, people uh, still recall reading his dispatches from civil rights uh, protests, and just he was a very good writer. John Scagliotti, his partner, uh, was uh, very interested in filmmaking and documentary and had gone to, uh, I think at that point had gone to a later NYU film school, and the two of them uh, came on and started doing the news and public affairs uh, at BCN. And as John says, you know, he made a point that I think was was uh, valid. He said one of the things about BCN was it was almost an experiment in an early version of people talk about diversity now, mm-hmm. which you didn't really find most places in America. But here was this radio station that had, uh, you know, two gay men who were involved and women and African-Americans and whites, you know, we were all just working together. And uh, they were given an hour to do a show uh, or ask for an hour. We used to do this thing called potluck where anybody on the staff could do a one-hour, like, one-off show. And they did a show called The Lavender Hour, which became the first gay and lesbian broadcast on any, you know, radio station ever. And it just had an enormous impact um, as John says in the film, you know, it sort of they were sort of tell you know uh, telling the stories of their lives and interviewing people who are gay and talking about uh, various cultural issues for uh, gay and lesbian people. But suddenly it's on the radio, and you know, New Hampshire and Western Massachusetts, and you know, there's this gay thing on the radio <laughs> that just caught people by surprise, and um, it, it just had an incredibly powerful effect. Um, and, and again, another example of BCN sort of dramatically moving the uh, mm-hmm. zeitgeist uh. forward to have a one-hour show weekly talking about gameless. And it wasn't it wasn't like a, a heavy-handed you know news report. It was music. It was culture. Exactly. Uh, in the film, we have a moment where. Uh, he went to New York and interviewed David Bowie, and they ended up getting in an argument about 
David Bowie's coming out versus saying he's bisexual. Um, yeah, fascinating stuff, and and all of it just out on the radio. And it's in the movie, a good bit of it too. And speaking of being in the movie, and I'm reminded Emma Goldman back, you know, well over a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. said, "If I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution." That's, yep, that's what BCN <laughs> was. It was fun. It was it it's uh, so much fun, and that's why kids loved it. Parents were a little bit not so sure, but young people loved it. <laughs> uh, a certain New Jersey rocker had his very first radio interview at WBCN. That's an interesting part of the film. Tell us about that, please. Who was that New Jersey rocker? Well, Bruce Springsteen, you know, who had, uh, if you if you people followed his career, he had uh, a lot of success on the Jersey Shore and became kind of like, you know, the, the top band Local at all guy, the yeah. bars on the Jersey Shore. Then they moved into New York, and first he came up and performed solo, uh, and then the band came up and they played, you know, New York City and became very popular. But beyond New York, it was very hard in the beginning. Uh, you know, Springsteen's music, the songs were long by comparison to most music. They were intricate. Uh, there were a lot of words. I mean, it was not something immediately that caught fire commercially. Yeah. And, uh, for, for a year or two, Springsteen was coming up to Boston and they were playing just Somebody said in the film, "Crummy bars." I mean, and and, and no uh, insult meant, but you know, Joe's place and and um, Oliver's and all of these little kind of dive bars um, to try to build an audience, and and so he came up um, to WBC and, and did what was his first radio interview ever, and this is one of the tapes that surfaced on the internet because the tape of it had gone from the station. Um, and, uh, you know, you can hear this very kind of nervous kid on the radio saying hi to his mom. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and that led to this performance he had at the Harvard Square Theater, where John Landau, who was a writer for The Real Paper, wrote the famous I've Seen the Future of Rock and Roll, and his name is Bruce Springsteen, which became an ad in Rolling Stone and, and, and propelled his career almost immediately. He ended up on the cover of time in Newsweek not long after that. So this was really the moment that his career took fire, caught fire. And you can see and hear it, um, you know, in, in those moments. Uh, we have tape of it and photos of him at that performance. And it's it's a pretty remarkable story. Yeah, it really is. And, and BCM was absolutely at the cutting edge. And uh, as you say, changed uh, the zeitgeist, moved the zeitgeist of the time. Well, I, I, wa- I still have a few more questions, but I just want to ask if people can't see the premiere of the film, how is it going to be uh, available? It's a documentary, uh, independently funded. It was funded, I guess, uh, you know, just panhandling, basically, as used to be popular in Boston. How can people uh, see the film BC- WBCN and the American Revolution? Sure. The film, you know, came together, the archives and, and the support largely through just, you know, people. It was not a big funder, and we really wanted to keep it an independent uh-huh. production by doing that. Um, it's it's rolling out through festivals. Um, the, the website is theamericanrevolution.fm, theamericanrevolution.fm, and we'll list oh, uh, screenings. Right now, over the summer, we're rolling out through film festivals. It just won the D.C. Independent Film Festival is playing Boston. And then there will be a uh, some form of theatrical screening and then um, broadcast, which we're working on now, and then uh, home video through Netflix or Amazon. Or So, you know, as with most films, it's sort of rolling out there. 
uh, and we did it this way so it could sort of build a head of steam as it as it goes. Um, but it should be available at some point to people. And if they go to the American Revolution dot FM, uh, they can sign up for our newsletter and, and stay in touch with. We'll stay in touch with you know news of the film and where it's going. And I, this this is a sort of open ended question. We only got a few seconds left here, but as it's now like fifty years after it started, a little more than that, are we winning? <laughs> that culture. Are we are we winning? Yes, that culture, the uh, cultural change. What do you think? I mean, Trump is president, but what? Do you, here's here's what I think, and it, it comes from a different part of my my work as a journalist, which has been over the years doing a lot of work on child welfare and 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 kids who are in state custody. And you do a story, and it has a big impact. You think we fixed that, and then I'm old enough now to be able to look back on situations where it's drifted back. Yeah, right. I think there is no winning. I think. Yeah. That, that <clears throat> democracy in our system, it, it requires this kind of, of uh, consciousness and awareness and creative creativity and protest, and it just has to keep pushing. And, and even if we're lucky enough uh, for, for uh, those who are opposed to our president, for him not to be reelected and mm. to get somebody progressive in office, that's not, you know, that's the beginning of it. And and it is, a, I think, just an eternal struggle. Uh, but they think the important thing is that people are engaged and involved with it and that they bring all the aspects of the culture to it. If you're a mu- musician, a writer, an artist, whatever you do, uh, I think that's one of the lessons of, of that era and of the film is it took everybody doing what they did together uh, to make the kind of social change that can happen. And so I think we're winning in the sense that we have the opportunity to fix things and make things better. Uh, and many things are better. I mean, I don't yes. want to say they're not, but it's a process. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's the message of the film. And to use media and whatever skills you have to do that. And I would think a lot of young people who are real interested in that particular period would like to see it and, and get some inspiration about what is possible. Again, what, tell us the website again that people should look at. TheAmericanRevolution.fm TheAmericanRevolution.fm Bill Lichtenstein, thank you so much. The film is called WBCN and The American Revolution. It goes on. Thank you. This was really appreciate the chance to, to chat. Thanks oh, a lot. Thank you. American Revolution. Revolution!